Lord God, we come before you, and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that while we have medicine and we have doctors and uh, knowledgeable professionals, Lord, we thank you that you are uh, the God over us. And Lord, we lift up Jennifer to you. We pray that you be with her body, that it will respond well uh, to the procedure. We pray, Lord, you'd give wisdom and skill to the medical staff, and that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would give peace over her, Lord, her, Nelson. We thank you, Father. And, Lord, we lift them up to you, and we lift up this time to you. May you speak to us. May your words uh, just stir in us and remind us, Lord, of your goodness and your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, a couple weeks ago, um, I was able to enjoy some good daddy-daughter time. I don't know if you dads who have daughters do that, but I recommend you set some time aside to have some daddy-daughter time. Uh, I, we had, uh, for Michaela and I, we were able to go to the Iowa, the USS Iowa, and be able to tour the battleship, and, and that was kind of really cool to, to be on the same ship that, that was in battle World War II and Korean War and things like that, and then we're able to enjoy some, uh, some yummy food afterwards in Redondo, so enjoyed that. And then uh, prior to that few days, my oldest daughter, she doesn't have as much time, so we squeezed in some time together, and we're able to uh, grab a bite to eat, and then we watched a movie. We watched a particular action film that's out now, and I'm, go- I'm not going to say which one I watched, because I really don't want to promote it. Um, if I'm going to be honest, uh, I walked out of the movie, and I felt a little less intelligent. Because I wondered, should I have understood the premise? Should I have understood this movie better? Am I just like not, not able to understand this? And I said, it didn't take me long to say, no, that's not it. This was just a bad movie. Uh, I, all right, it was a pretty bad movie. It was pretty poorly written, in my opinion. Now, this is just my opinion. I understand that. But I got to say that it seems to be that... Writing a good story seems to be a lost art today. I know I'm a, I'm a I, I love watching movies, watching shows, so I enjoy a good story. And it just seems like there's a lot less good stories, good movies this today. You know, and I'm an action hero kind of guy, right? And I like those action movies, but oh uh, yeah, this one was pretty bad. But it's a hard skip. I would say definitely don't pay twenty bucks. To go see it. Just my opinion. Just my opinion. But, um, yeah, I know it's just me, but it, it seems like writing a good story is hard to find these days, because when I think of a good story, good storytelling, right? A good storytelling is like, in a movie or show, like, each moment is purposeful, right? There's something about that moment that it, it's, it has meaning, and that meaning, it all connects, right? A good story, each scene or moment connects with each other. And that it, it all moves in a direction and it paints a, 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 contributes to a bigger part of the story, right? That's a good storytelling. It's good storytelling. Good storytelling is one where you can go back to see it and you could like appreciate something new about it. 
You can watch it again like, oh, you know what? I didn't see that before. Oh, that makes sense. Or, wow, I didn't even realize that. And you can go back and find a new appreciation for it. Right? Good storytelling you connect with. Like no matter the scenario or situation or genre or like what the backdrop is, you can find some connection to the story. And that kind of seems to be lost these days, right? I think entertainment kind of dumbed down us as consumers a little bit. So sometimes it's a little harder to find good storytelling. And that's why I say, and I've said this before, that the best storyteller, the greatest storyteller, is God himself. God truly writes a beautiful story. And if God is a great storyteller, you would imagine he writes a great story of Christ on earth, his time on earth, the beautiful story that he tells, that he shows us, and that we've been seeing throughout Mark. And and I've mentioned several times, and I hope that in our time with Mark, we've been in Mark for like for a a good minute, right? It's been a while. But hopefully you can understand and and, and piece together the story that's unfolding, that we've been looking at. That each moment in the story of Mark, the gospel of Mark, the narrative, has been purposeful and meaningful. And it seems to be connected. And it's all pointing towards the part of Mark that we're in today and we'll be in for the next few weeks leading up to Easter so hopefully you can appreciate and you can see. And I think today we'll find some connection with what we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We're going to go through the whole, this whole passage together. And then we're going to break it down and, and appreciate what is taking place. So Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, and prepare for us there. And the disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved. And say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. 
And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and said, And they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now we'll look at this passage in three sections. Okay, We're going to break it down into three sections that we just read. One is the preparation for the Passover. All right? The first section, the preparation for the Passover. The second section is where Jesus reveals he's going to be betrayed. And finally, the third one, we're going to look at the meaning of the Passover. Now, if you remember, if you are here with us last week, or if you heard it, you watched it online, the Passover is the backdrop of Jesus' crucifixion. That's going on. That's in the backdrop. That's what's taking place in the time, right? And so they're preparing for the, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the story of Jesus' death and sacrifice is one that has been foreshadowed from the very beginning. Talk about great storytelling, right? Right, a great story. A lot of people, the reason why they like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is because you watch the beginning of the movies, they're, they're going somewhere, right? They're pointing to something. Well, that pales in comparison, right? Jesus' sacrifice is foreshadowed from the very beginning. We see that the image of sacrifice to cover shame and guilt, right? If you're familiar with what Jesus' death and resurrection means to us, right? This idea of sacrifice to cover shame and guilt was actually introduced in the fall in the garden. If you notice that, when Adam and Eve fell, what did, Jesus, what did God do for them? The Lord made garments of skin to cover Adam and Eve. If you're very familiar, right? When Adam and Eve took of the fruit, what immediately did they feel? They felt shame. They felt guilt. They knew what they did was wrong. So God said, you can no longer be in the garden. But what did he do? He covered their body with clothing, right? With the skin of animals. He covered their shame and guilt figuratively, right? Figuratively. So this image of sacrifice to cover shame and guilt was being foreshadowed from the very beginning. What happened? Deliverance from judgment upon sin and evil, right? This concept of deliverance from judgment. We saw that in Noah and the ark, right? God was bringing judgment upon sinful man, but God didn't totally eradicate all life in terms of humans. But through Noah and the ark, he saved them from judgment. The idea, this, this notion of the beloved son as a willing sacrifice was foreshadowed in the faith of Abraham and Isaac. Both Abraham, the father, and the son had faith in God, but Isaac also had faith in his father, who was willing to be a sacrifice. We don't know, we, we don't get it, we don't understand, but we don't see Isaac saying, hey, pops, what do you, what do you think you're doing? We don't see him wrestling on the, sac- the altar, the sacrifice, hey, what are you doing, dad? 
You can't do this. You can't hold me down. So we see these elements of foreshadowing pointing to the cross long before. Long before. And of course then we see the Passover becoming an amazing picture of deliverance from death through innocent sacrifice. So we see the disciples... They're preparing for the Passover. In verse 12, it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said, Now, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, last week, I gave a quick glance about what was happening. What was the meaning of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread? We know that in Jerusalem, thousands upon thousands of people are converging upon Jerusalem to honor and celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the sacrifice of the Lamb. So they're all converging into Jerusalem. And here's a quick glance about the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I mentioned some of, most of this last week. Right? On the 10th of Nisan, all right, it was a month, the Jewish month of Nisan, on the 10th, the unblemished male lamb is set apart for the sacrifice. Right? So it's always on the 10th. They set apart the male lamb to be the sacrifice, okay? And then on the 14th, which is the official day of Passover, that is when the lamb is prepared. The lamb is killed for the Passover meal that will be that evening. Now, we have to understand the, concept, the Jewish concept of time. They mark the days from sunset to sunset, okay? So sunset one day to the next day sunset is a day. Right? So technically, in our concept of a calendar day, you can have two calendar days on the same day. You follow me? You got to understand? So on the 14th, when the Passover lamb is killed, that evening would be considered the 15th, the first day of unleavened bread. And that is when the Passover meal is eaten together. Follow me? So the Feast of Unleavened Bread covers seven days, technically, although the Passover day on the 14th is often brought mentioned together. So that's why you see Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, is connected together. Okay, you follow me so far? You understand what's taking place? So it's seven days. So the first and seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread are days of rest. Days of work, the, no work, the days of rest rest it's a sabbath now prior to the feast prior to the 15th of meal what they had to do is remove all leaven from the home we know leaven as yeast right all leaven must be removed from the home i'm not just talking about food products we're talking even a crumb there could not be a crumb of leavened bread in the home so all leading up to the 15th, to that evening, they need to make sure they do some serious cleaning so that there's no leaven products in the house, not even a breadcrumb. Now, can you imagine if your parents woke you up and said, we need to clean the house so much that we can't even have a crumb of leaven? Does that sound fun? <laughs> From his mouth, all right? From his mouth. So there is that celebration, right? So not so much as even a crumb. 
Now, what's, why is this significant? If the Passover is the backdrop of Jesus' crucifixion, right? Let's connect the significance here. On the 10th, the lamb is chosen for the Passover. We know from John's account, on the 10th is when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Between the 10th and the 14th, the lamb is found to be unblemished, right? It needs to be an unblemished lamb, spotless, right? So there's that period of time we know that Jesus was proven unblemished. If you remember the previous passages, when Jesus was challenged, remember the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they all came and converged and tried to test Jesus, try to trick him, try to make him catch him in his words. He was found unblemished. They couldn't, they had nothing on him. He was untouchable. It's interesting. And then, of course, on the 14th, The day the lamb is killed, I believe that backdrop is where Jesus is crucified. And then the symbolism, the significance doesn't even stop there if you even think about it. Even the removal of all traces of leaven, right? Leaven becomes symbolic of sin, right? So the families, they were to remove all traces of leaven. And for that week period, they're to have no leaven, unleavened bread, Right? No yeast in their food, in their bread. And you think about what Jesus did for us. Jesus removes all traces of sin in us. A lot of people look at even Jesus cleansing out the temple, right? He drove out the money changers. So people look at that as a symbolism of the removal of the leaven as well. I think you can throw that in there. But think about that powerful image uh, the removal of the leaven and that image of what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus removes all traces of sin in us. That's a powerful, powerful message. You think of all the things that you have done in your life that kind of haunt you, right? That you feel like you can't scrub out. Have you ever had something like that? A stain that you've tried to scrub out and you just can't get it out? And the fact that what Jesus did for us is to wipe us clean of all sin. And you may think, well, Pastor Mike, um, don't we still sin? Right? We can accept Christ and believe that he died for our sin and accept and ask for forgiveness of our sin and that he forgives us, but don't we still sin? And I say, yeah, that is true. So long as we live in this human flesh, so long as we have our human minds, so long as we are prone in, our, in this body, yeah, we are still prone to sin. We're still going to do things based on our desires that we shouldn't do. That is true. But in the eyes of eternity, when we stand before God, if we have Christ, received his salvation, received his forgiveness, then we will stand before God in no trace of sin. We, are, we, stand un, we don't stand condemned before God. That's an amazing concept. It's an amazing thing to think about. 
And it's amazing how we see that this is the backdrop of what Jesus is going to do, the celebration of the Passover and the unleavened bread. So Jesus, he goes, in the preparation, the disciples ask, so Jesus, where are we going to prepare for the Passover meal? So Jesus sends these two disciples to prepare for the Passover meal. And what the disciples were not aware of was that Jesus made plans in advance. He had made plans about where to go, and he even told them, go see this man. He's going to carry money, a water jar. Go follow him, and he will show you where to prepare for the Passover meal. So Jesus had made plans in advance, and the disciples didn't know about it. And you may wonder, well, why didn't the disciples know about it? Well, think about it. What happened in the passage we looked at last week? What did we see one of his disciples was doing? We saw that Judas was going to conspire, find a way to betray Jesus. Right? We saw that in last week's passage. He was thinking, finding a way for Jesus to be seized without the people knowing, without people realizing, right? Because the chief priests, the scribes, are scared of the, the reaction, the response of the people. So I find it interesting that Jesus had made preparations and even the disciples didn't know about it. This meal needed to be done. He needed to do this with the disciples before he was seized. So it's interesting. And so you have Peter and John. We know this from according to Luke. Peter and John were sent out to make arrangements. Verse 17, we see, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table, eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. It can't be me, right? It's not me, is it? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Boy, that's I wouldn't want to hear that, right? So it's evening. Jesus is reclining at the meal table with the twelve, with the twelve disciples. And we see from this last week and this week, Mark presents us with two scenes at a meal table, right? If you remember last week. Last week you looked at Mark 14 and verses 3 through 9 is at a meal table. And there we saw Mary anoints Jesus with costly perfume. And Jesus declared in that moment... He said that what is happening, what, what she is doing is like an anointing, is preparing him for his burial. He honored what Mary was doing to him. And I don't think Mary understood what she was doing fully and completely. But what Jesus saw what she was doing was in preparation for his burial. He knew what was happening. He knew what was coming, right? But we also saw in that passage that must have triggered something with Judas because we see at the end, uh, Mark notes that Judas later went to go to the chief priests. And he said, look, let's work something out. We see that Judas from that point was conspiring 
to seize Jesus to betray him. So that was a table setting, right? But here in this table setting, again, what does Jesus do? One of the things he does, he announces his betrayal. He's preparing the disciples for his burial, but he reveals, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. Now, you can imagine if you're the 12, right? You have been with Jesus throughout all that ministry. You've heard him preach. You've seen him do miracles. You're like, man, me and Jesus, we're like this. Right? Can you imagine you're the disciples, you're around the people, and they're asking you about this Jesus, and you're like, yeah, I'm sure, like, yeah, I know this Jesus. Yeah, we kind of, we hang out. Right? We're like that together. And then Jesus to say, one of you, will betray me. One of you who dips spread in the sop, in the, in the thing that they have in the meal. Now, I think it's kind of amazing that despite, you know, we've read in Mark, Jesus has pointed out a lot of shortcomings with the disciples, right? Their lack of faith in this moment, the lack of foresight in this moment, but it's still the 12. You get what I'm saying? Despite all the unfaithful moments that the disciples had, the 12, it's still the 12 with Jesus in these final moments, hours away from the cross. Potentially an hour or two, who knows, before his betrayal, he is still with the 12. I don't know about you, but that's kind of amazing to me. If I knew someone was going to betray me, I would say, you know what? You can sit this one out. (laughs) You can, you know what? Why don't you go do something? I'm going to have a moment with the ones who aren't going to betray me, right? That's my thinking. And he said to them, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the bowl. Now, evidently, this didn't tip off the 11 disciples, We see in John's account that they didn't even notice Jesus dipping the bread and giving it to Judas. They thought, well, you know, and Judas says, you know, you go do what you're going to do. And the disciples say, well, maybe Judas, because he has the money box, maybe he needs to go pay for something from the preparations or something like that. It didn't tip them off. They didn't put two and two together. We know later on they actually even debated about who was going to be the greatest. There's still that argument in the disciples. But Jesus says to him, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That warning still didn't shake Judas up. Meaning of the Passover, verse 22. And while they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and said, They all drank from it. And he said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now we see in this scene, these familiar elements of this meal indicates this is a Passover meal Jesus is having with the disciples. He took the unleavened bread, which is said a customary blessing before. He broke it and he gave it to the disciples. He took a cup, also gave words of thanksgiving. He gave it to them to drink. So this is all a setting that would be familiar to the Jews. It would indicate this is a Passover meal. 
And it's interesting, we see the blessing, the breaking of the, be- the bread, and passing out to the disciples. That ought to remind us of what we've read in Mark before, right? Right? The scene foreshadowed before when Jesus fed the multitudes. He gave a blessing, thanksgiving to God, got the bread broken and distributed and fed it to the people, foreshadowing what is going to take place. Now, why is this significant? This is no ordinary Passover meal. The disciples, they have no idea the magnitude, the significance of this moment that they're having. For them, it's very customary. It is their custom. As Jewish men, they know they're celebrating and honoring the Passover meal. This is something that they do. But interesting in my, in my study and reading this passage, I wanted to look at it from a particularly Jewish perspective, right? Because these are Jewish men celebrating what would be a Jewish uh, celebration, a feast, the Passover and unleavened bread. So I, I looked and I wanted to see it from a Jewish perspective. And I saw this article... And it's from a messianic rabbi, rab, not rabbi, not ribeye stick, rabbi, okay, Pas, uh, a messianic rabbi. When you see a messianic Jew or messianic synagogue, that's a Jewish uh, people who recognize and accept Jesus as the Messiah, so they're converted Jews, okay? And it's an article that this rabbi wrote uh, regarding the last cedar or the Passover meal, Here's some interesting notes. I wanted to read it to you from their, its perspective. This idea of cleansing out of the leaven. I don't have the article up there. I just want to show you where I got this from. During the seven days of the festival, it is forbidden to be in the possession of anything containing leaven. Okay, yeast, right? I mentioned that to you all. Usually, a ritual search for leaven is made the 24 hours prior to the beginning of the festival. They're serious about this, right? So the search is done after dusk with a candle and a wooden spoon, a feather and a piece of of linen. And if children are present, it is not unusual to plant some crumbs of bread for them to find. Any crumbs or leaven which are bound are swept onto the wooden spoon with the feather. Then the wooden spoon, the candle, the feather, and the leaven are all wrapped lightly together in the linen. And the whole leaven package is placed outside the house to be burned in the morning. What a game. There's a childhood game for you. those of you who have little kids. There's a game you can play. Find the leaven, right? You know, I, all right, that doesn't sound too fun for you guys. But the symbolism of leaven is kind of interesting. This idea of bread. There's a deep and spiritual meaning to the ritual of eating only unleavened bread for the seven days of the festival. In ancient times, dough was leavened by adding a starter dough left over from the last batch of bread much the way sourdough bread is made today. Therefore, a culture of leaven was passed on from loaf to loaf to loaf. The commandment to get rid of all the old leaven and start with the new unleavened bread symbolizes a clean break from the past. It is a chance to start over. It is a chance to start fresh. It is like being born again. That's an interesting concept. How many of us wish we had a new start, a new beginning? And this picture of having unleavened bread is a picture saying, you can have a fresh start. What about the bread? The disciples of the master find an even deeper meaning in the bread. The unleavened bread teaches us about the body of the master. 
If we examine a piece of matzah, right, the unleavened bread, we will see that it has three particular attributes, or peculiar attributes, excuse me. The first, it is pierced. You can see little holes in the matzah. Two, it is striped. And three, it is flat. Just as the unleavened bread is pierced, Messiah's body was pierced. Just as the unleavened bread is striped, his body was striped and wounded. And just as the unleavened bread is without yeast, making it flat, he was without sin. So we find it written in the scriptures, they will look upon the one they have pierced, Zechariah 12.10. And again, by his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53.5. And again, yet he was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. And they also recognized, for the sake of time, I'll stop here, the cup of salvation. The cup that they were to drink of it represented salvation in the meal. So it's interesting, from the Jewish perspective, what they were doing that night was very powerful. And the disciples in the moment could not fathom the depth of what was happening in that very moment. Verse 25. He says, truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now notice Jesus declares the hope of the kingdom of God. He doesn't say, my death is going to be the end. But he says, I'm not going to drink this again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He knows he's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to be betrayed, beaten, and face death. But that's not going to be his end. He says, I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. So he projects hope, right? This message of hope. <clears throat> but notice what happens. They sing which was customary in the Passover meal. They sang a hymn together before Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. Now what an awesome, I, I imagine this. Now that might have been the most powerful praise session ever. <laughs> Can you think about that? Can you imagine that moment? Jesus had the scene with the Passover meal. He's declaring what's happening. He knows what's going to take place. And before he goes to the garden, where he knows he's going to be betrayed, where he knows that the disciples are going to leave him, they sing songs of praise to God. I would have loved to have been in that praise session that worship session in that moment with Jesus. If we did not know before, Mark has shown us God is in control the entire time. If there's nothing you've seen throughout Mark, you can see God is in control the entire time. His plan of salvation has been unfolding from the very beginning. That is a story that man cannot make up on its own over centuries, across cultures, across generations, and have that theme woven throughout time. That God had a plan of salvation, and it involved his eternal son being the sacrifice, the lamb of God for us. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing to see God's story unfolding even through Christ? 
and how his hand was on each moment and each time leading up to the perfect time for his death and resurrection. I want to end with this, with this thought. I want you to think about your story for a second. The story of your life. You may think, well, why am I thinking about my story? I think many insist on being the writer of their own story. Right? Many people insist, I want to be the writer of my own story. I want to determine what happens, when it happens, how it happens, who's involved in what happens. I want to be the writer of my story. And if it all goes wrong, I'll blame it on God. Right? Isn't that what happens? That's kind of what we insist upon. God, I want to do what I want, how I want, when I want. This is how it's supposed to play out. And if something goes wrong, it's our fault. I've mentioned to you guys before. Oh, I think I have. I don't know if I have or not with you. But God gave me a saying um, in my early 20s. And it's, I have a hope for my future because of his fingerprints on my past. Have I mentioned that to you guys before? I don't want to be too repetitive if I did. I have hope for my future because of his fingerprints on my past. And that came to me because uh, I was in a time of reflection. I saw how God's hands are on so many different things in my life. And it's because I can see how God's fingerprints was on different parts of my life. I see, you know what? Why should I lose hope for my future knowing what he has done in the past for me? And that comes, the reason why I share that comes to mind is because when we see the perfect story unfolding, what Christ was doing and his plan of salvation from so much, so much time before, it should cause us to really reflect on us and say, you know what? Why don't I want God to be the writer of my story? Why am I fighting that? Why is there anything I would want other than God? I want your fingerprints on my life. I want to see what you can do in my life because I see what you've done already. And I want that. As we continue, we see Jesus fulfilling the role of the Passover lamb. And we're going to look at more of this leading up to Easter. Look at that lamb. My goodness. Yeah, I see some, some faces that are like, oh, so cute. Is there a more picture, accurate picture of innocence than the lamb? And I think as we go along, we're going to appreciate the innocent sacrifice on our behalf. The one who saved the Hebrews by the shedding of the Lamb's blood is the one who saves us by the shedding of his blood on the cross. The unblemished Lamb foreshadowed the unblemished Son of God. Praise God. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we thank you.
that, Lord, your plan of salvation has been, was unfolding from the very beginning. You did not wait, but your plan was in motion from the moment sin entered in. You knew. And you foreshadowed your plan of salvation for us to receive, to believe. And Lord, I pray that everyone here in this room or who's listening or watching, whatever it may be, want your hand to write the story in their life. To recognize that Jesus, you are the Lamb of God, sacrificed for sin and guilt and shame on my behalf. I want you as my Savior and Lord. I need your forgiveness. I need that new start that you can give me to be covered by your blood. We pray this, Jesus, in your name.